Good day, listeners. Welcome to the Tech Leaders Talk Show, where we get to know technology leaders on a personal front. We also talk about their careers, some of the big challenges they've faced, and how they've overcome those challenges. Please help others find the show by rating us on your favorite podcast engine. Today, we talk with Mark Cohen, former CIO and CTO of the main group. Mark has a great sense of humor and 25 years worth of experience. So he shares some entertaining stories on how Domain Group uses podcasting internally. We also talk about leadership, strategy, and people, and much, much more. Enjoy the show. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on the show, and thank you for joining us. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Mark Cohen, a former CTO and CIO of Domain Group. Mark, welcome. Thank you. So, Mark, do you just want to spend uh, five or ten minutes on your background, where you come from, and maybe how you ended up in Australia? Yeah, sure. I was originally from Johannesburg in South Africa. I studied at Fitz University Computer Science. My first job I started out, my first post-uni job, was uh, working for PPS, an insurance kind of company. And it didn't take me very long to get into kind of consulting work working on Microsoft technologies. So working for what was then called a Microsoft solution provider. Very soon after we started working, myself and a couple of mates figured out we could do that for ourselves. So we started our own little business. And then we were approached by an investor who was looking to get into South Africa. Midway through the conversations, I told him, look, full disclosure, actually planning on moving to Australia. My papers have just come through. So you need to be sure you like my business partners because I'm probably going to leave. And he told me, when you get to Australia, come have a chat. Uh, we got to Australia just in time for the dot-com crash. And so I, I got to eat a bit of humble pie and learn how hard it was to start over. So I did actually go talk to him and I ended up working for him, running his tech team because his uh, CTO at the time had resigned and was moving back to Ireland. I did that for a few years, ended up going into media, went back to work in the consulting business again, went back into media again, did some work in e-commerce for a while and then went back into kind of media transactions, but Fairfax, different role, but same company. And things kind of organically evolved and then came time where I was looking to do something new and Domain broke out of Fairfax into its own company. And I joined Domain just after that. And then we took it to the ASX, which was huge fun. And then two years later, I've just wrapped up and left now. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So when you... When did you figure out that you actually want to be working in tech or was that just something that happened? Tell the story behind that. So when I went to university, I actually registered initially to do mechanical engineering and consistently through engineering, I got my first for maths, physics, computers, electronics, and the subjects I did the worst in were thermodynamics and fluid mechanics and the, the actual engineering subject. Um, so I changed over to computer science and I did computer science and applied maths and I loved it and I cruised through and it was pretty much halfway through engineering I realized that I was studying the wrong thing and it was pretty clear from what I was enjoying at uni already where my real interests lay. And yeah, I never looked back. Computer science was an amazing degree to do. Set me up to I remember like the course coverage was, there weren't all the different types of computer degrees that you get today. There was basically computer science. That was it. And I think my year was the second year that 
admit that computer science was not part of the applied maths department. It was actually its own department. So it was very nascent. And yeah, I loved it because there was only one course. It was very broad. And so it was not focused, say, only on software engineering. It was everything that fell into computer science. Yeah, it set me up really well to get out there and do my own thing as well. And you, when we spoke a little bit earlier, you mentioned that you were looking at potentially moving to the UK first. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that story because that was quite a funny story that. Um, so I had a friend that I used to work with who moved to the UK and he started his own business and was doing a lot of consulting work, mainly SQL Server and, and database related, but web development as well. He sent an email to say, I've got more work than I can do. I've got a job waiting if you want to come. Just come on over and, you know, let's have some fun together. Um, I spoke to my wife who was, at the time our papers had just come through for Australia and she didn't want to follow the traditional South African migration pattern which involves you go to the UK, you save up some pounds, you come to Australia and you buy a house. And she said we're immigrating once. And her sister was already living in Sydney. So not only was it we're only moving to Australia, <laughs> It was, we were moving to Sydney and not only Sydney, but the same neighborhood as her sister. So it was all preordained and pre-calculated. And that was, if I remember correctly, you said 2001, yeah. more or less. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you moved into Fairfax so Media. Was there intention to always move into that industry or did that just kind of happen by chance? 50-50 chance and intention. I was always since i came to australia i've been very interested in web and web development and digital tech and how digital changes companies and fairfax at the time had fairfax digital had been established it was it had been around for a few years already but they were one of the few companies where you could traditional media had created a digital business and it was running at arm's length it was not part of the actual legacy media company so they had a little bit more room to be disruptive and to try new things. And that was what was really appealing and interesting. Okay. So you moved from a development role and then you pretty qu quickly moved into sort of the management role. We spoke earlier about where, and we'll come on to the story as well with regards to the podcast, but you talk about how a lot of technical people get sort of almost automatically transitioned into management roles but don't necessarily get the support what were the sort of some of the big lessons for you in that transition and how did you cope with those it's a that's a huge question <laughs> in my first first role out of uni i remember cto i think he was or cio um at pps was a guy named rod pinar and they did personality profiles across a whole bunch of the team and they were doing kind of career development planning and I remember talking to him and he pulled out the profile that they'd done on me. I don't remember which tool it was, what it was called, but my profile was, it was kind of the exact opposite of what they actually say is good for tech. And back then he already said to me, your, your career path is going to go to the intersection of business and tech. It's not going to just be tech. There was a lady at PPS at the time who was running change management for them. And he was joking, obviously, but he said, whatever you do, don't let her see this profile because it was... You know, it was exactly that profile, the person who gets the business to adopt new tech and to drive that. And so, so the kind of traits were, they showed up in my profile from my first job. Um, and it's, it's kind of stayed true. So every role I've had, I've always gravitated towards how do we get the business to get the most possible value from their investment in the tech team? And that is not 
only about short-term investment it's about long-term gain as well so you know you grow your people and you support them and then they stick around and you have the right culture so people are happy to come to work and you have diversity of thought and opinions that you don't all come to the same conclusion so you've got your, your odds of success are better and that's kind of just been the fundamental principle since I started off so I did kind of float up pretty quickly into a leadership role I think I'm about to jump ahead <laughs> no 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 please continue um, so I floated up into a leadership role relatively quickly when I went into consulting the day that we resigned three of us resigned to start a business together because it worked out that we were all capable of doing the work and that was the same day that they offered me promotion into it would have been my first what they call the business unit manager at the company where i was working so the business unit was like what we would call a scrum team today and i remember a lot of people didn't like the promotion because the acronym for business unit manager was bum so, <laughs> so on the day that we resigned there was the option to become a bum or to go work for yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it kind of just played out from that point on. So once we started our own business, you we were technical, we were hands-on, the, the three of us who founded the business. But at the same time, as soon as you start hiring people, someone's going to have to be the people manager and that kind of leadership thing emerges very quickly. Okay, okay. Uh, how what would your advice be for younger people who you know, want to become leaders, but they, you know, they're still technical, but want to become leaders. How do they prepare themselves so that they don't suddenly get hit by that massive transition, you know, and it's sort of like, oh, how do I deal with this now? How would, what's your recommendation to them? You really need to understand why you want to move into people management, because especially smaller companies, they don't have a career development framework, maybe, or what, you know, they don't have a, a technical path and a management path. So are you going into people management because it's there's a linear single path in the company where you are junior, mid-senior engineer, team lead? And if that's the kind of scenario that you're facing, be careful about why you're doing it. If you want a raise, if it's about the financial remuneration and you're looking for the next step to make more money, you might have outgrown the company where you work. So you, you need to consider what is your actual motivation. Sometimes you have a senior developer who should be maybe going the architecture path or, you know, principal engineer, something that's more technical and hands-on and stays individual contributor. And sometimes you actually see it play out a lot where you see a person who's a natural leader. There was a lady that I worked with at Domain who you could see it when she was, I think she was a few months into the role and she was that natural charismatic person, low-key, understated people would gravitate to her and you could see this is going to be a team lead this, you can kind of see the tendency very early so self-awareness um fear sorry self-awareness peer feedback is probably one of the most valuable things as well so ask people what do you think i do well even if it's formalized and you you have an hr team and they do 360s put your hand up for a 360 and get feedback Interesting, interesting. So we're, we're jumping a little bit around here, but you mentioned, this is on topic, because you mentioned how you're using podcasts in Domain Group to help people grow from, um, in a leadership perspective. Explain a little bit the problem and, you know, and how, the, because the outcome there was quite funny, actually, how yeah. that happened. So talk, talk us through that story. So we were looking at how we can, train our team leads because there's a there's a, a real gap in terms of technical leadership development there's a lot of leadership development out there and the, it's kind of all generalist in tech you need specific tools 
and it is 50% tech still when you're moving into your first leadership role. It's never going to be 100% leadership and the tech is now someone else's job. In that transition, what most companies do and what we had happening as well was it's um, you're an awesome junior engineer, go to mid-level. You're an awesome mid, go to senior. You're an awesome senior. Welcome to being a leader. Good luck. Let's see if you sink or swim. Um, so to, to try and make more people swim and less sink, we wanted to develop training so we could actually point people at repeatable, scalable training material. We started a leadership guild, which was a team leads guild, which would meet once a week and we would run training and specific training. Like we ran one on Radical Candor, which is, if you don't know Radical Candor, it's Kim Scott's book. It's worth looking at. Um, and people loved it. So it was that kind of thing where how do we give you a specific tool set that's going to be useful to help you grow as the people manager, not just the tech bit. We assume the tech bit's licked. The one thing that we encountered was the training, in order to be repeatable, it couldn't rely on, say, me showing up and running training. So we wanted to make a video series and talk to people who had already done what you'd done and put the videos into a learning hub that we had at work. On the first day that we were recording a video, I forgot to start the video capture, so we only had audio. And so we made a podcast by accident and um, our HR business partner once spoke something about, she said something to me on Slack about, is this your accidental podcast? And then that became the name, it stuck. <laughs> so we had Domain's Accidental Tech Podcast, which um, the recording was terrible because it, was, it really was an MVP just to test if people would be interested in listening. But the content was actually pretty good. So we ran five, we recorded and, and published five. And then we opened them up externally and put them onto iTunes as well, which was, it was really interesting. It was a good exercise. It's interesting. I'm seeing more and more businesses. I had a pleasure of interviewing Brett Fenton a few weeks ago. He spoke about how they're also using podcasts, and but their outcome was a little bit more different in the sense of it was more about bringing people together and people understanding other people's roles and stuff like that. So that was, that was a very interesting conversation as well. And the use of podcasts. So... So when you approach a new role, right? How do you how do you work with the team initially to bring them on board and work out the strategy on how you're going to move forward, build trust, and all that type of stuff? What's your approach with that type of stuff? Ooh, that's such a big question. Big question again. Um, <laughs> building trust is there's some really good stuff you can actually read in terms of formalized approaches, but ultimately I think what it comes down to is you bring your whole self to work. You'd be 100% authentic. When I introduce people, when I introduce myself to people, I'll very often tell them about, you know, my life, not just what I do for work. If I come into work, I'm an incredibly easy person to read. If I've had a bad day, I walk into work and people who know me within like five minutes will say, what's up? You know, it's, you can read it on my face. So for better and for worse, it's, you know, exactly what's going on with me. That kind of don't really like to call it vulnerability, but being transparent, being open, being honest, and just being authentic, that actually builds trust. The other thing which is really important is, in fact, anyone who's a parent has probably learned this just organically. As soon as there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, you approach it straight away, and not too soon because you want to be 100% certain you're going to be able to deal with it in a calm way and not get emotional and not react. But as soon as you can do that, you deal with it. If you sit on something for two weeks or three weeks and then have a catch up with someone and say, you know, three weeks ago you did this wrong. Firstly, you've lost time relevance. So it's kind of, it's gone from being something that they're actually going to be learning from to an academic exercise. Rather approach it straight away. Mm -hmm. And secondly, 
there's always a way to approach everything and to play the ball, not the player. So talk about what went right, what went wrong, how we're going to do better next time in a way that the person doesn't feel as if this is a, an attack. Mm. Sometimes it's going to have to get a little bit personal, but whenever you can make it not personal, it's always better just to talk about what is it that we're going to do better. This went wrong. I need you to do it this way next time. Please come and talk to me before you respond rather than after. Don't send the angry email. Whatever it happens to be, as if you catch it straight away, that's the way you change behavior. And you don't erode trust because if you sit on it for two weeks and they're getting a vibe from you that something's not right, then you're kind of damaging the relationship. It becomes bigger, doesn't it? Yeah. It becomes yeah. bigger. You did a very interesting talk. I think it was at Ignite, if I remember correctly. This was quite a few years ago, so hopefully you know, it still rings a bell. But you meant to talk about how to not hate your job. Right. Your opinion then, or what what you spoke about then, how do you see that being different to now, or do you still kind of think the overall message is more or less the same? Um, I still think it's pretty accurate. The funniest thing about that talk, standing up in front of the entire Ignite audience in Sydney and talking about how to not hate your job, in like a couple of rows from the front, right at the stage, maybe three people back from the stage, was my boss who <laughs> he's he's a fantastic guy and he has a good sense of humor so the talk went down well but i think that's probably made it more terrifying than anything else <laughs> all my colleagues and my boss right there yeah it's triggered that talk i signed up to talk at ignite and i was very focused on it was actually a conversation with my boss and the leadership team at the time it was um my boss was a guy named Andrew Lampotang, who was the CIO and CTO for Fairfax, and I reported into him along with, so I ran the product technology, which was the, the, the teams that built the digital products. And so we were very digitally focused and the culture was very different to, let's call it the legacy media business. And then even within tech, the, my one peer had enterprise systems and internal tech, which was much more traditional as opposed to the digital end and how you manage that in the environment and how you stop friction and how you dealt with one area of the business where there were there were redundancies happening at times and other areas that we had to pay more money to retain people like it was it was a two-speed economy in one business and so there were a lot of conversations around that and around why people would quit and We'd had a conversation about that, and I remember Andrew had actually said at our tech leadership team meeting, people don't leave for the hygiene factors. If you've looked after the basic hygiene factors like pay, that's not what makes him start leaving. It might be what makes someone accept a new role because you know there's a significant raise and it crosses their risk threshold, but that's not why they start looking. And that got me thinking about it, and that kind of yielded that talk. Okay. Okay, that's going to be another big question. Sorry. <laughs> um, with regards to, so when it comes to entering a new business or line of business for that matter, how do you start approaching, figuring out what strategy you want to follow for your, for your team and for your business? Uh, how, what's your approach for that? Um, I, when I changed jobs about more than a decade ago, someone gave me a book called The First 90 Days. Okay, yes. Um, it's a really good book. And I kind of use that philosophy, not as a textbook, but just as a heuristic. Spend, I spend time talking to people. The first thing I do is I just try and get a real feel for not the cultural values that will be on the posters in reception, but what do they actually do? What is the lived culture every day? 
and how far can you push things without alienating people and why you go through a recruitment process and there'll be a job and they'll tell you why they're hiring the role, whatever. When you get there and you start talking to people about why they believe you there as opposed to why the management team created the role maybe or you're not there's you you want to get a real idea of the expectations on you from the most junior person you're going to work with to the most senior and that's going to frame up what's expected of you and help you define your tech strategy and what you're going to do within the team there's also that thing when you arrive in a company you don't know what you don't know so if you come out guns blazing there's a very high probability that you're going to miss the target so spend a few weeks talking to people Often what, what I've done in the past is I've had a script of questions and I've asked everyone I've met with the same questions. I want to know what they think needs fixing, who the, the key players in the tech team are, who the, you know, get, get a feel for the whole business's perception of your domain. And then that gives you a foundation of this is where we're starting from. And then that's always the, that's always my first two to four weeks is just get a feel for what's actually happening, warts and all, and then figure out what you want to take on. Mm. Okay. I actually started reading. You recommended a strategy book for me. Not the long. That's it. That's it. Yes. So I'm still working through that one at the moment. Okay. And then, okay. So once you work on, you start understanding what the business needs, what people's expectation of you, how do you sort of continually communicate, okay, here's the direction we're going, you know, through both through your team as well as through your stakeholders? What's your process there? When I was working at Fairfax, probably nine or 10 years ago, we used to do reports for the CEO and we would you know, track the key tech initiatives and product technology or digital tech, the kind of thing that a CTO would normally look after. There's a big overlap between the remit of the CTO and the product team because the, the majority of work is shipping product. So work out with your product stakeholders who's communicating what so that there's no trading on toes. Back then when I was working in that role, we instead of doing a CEO report, we kind of felt there's one, maybe it's going to an exec team. So maybe eight, 10, 12 people are reading a report. That's not really transparency. So back then I set up an account on MailChimp and I got a list of all the email addresses from the company. This was an MVP hack. And we started doing a weekly tech update. Um, we moved to fortnightly sprints at some point. So then we started doing a fortnightly tech update and I've had that running pretty much ever since. And so the, the reason we did that was we created a tech newsletter that went to the whole company. Um, at points along the way, I've surveyed and said, should we can it? Is it relevant? Do we need to tweak the format? And what I found at Domain in my last role in particular was the people who loved it the most were the people in the sales team because it gave them a finger on the pulse of what's going on in the tech team, which gives them things to talk to their customers about and it makes them feel more connected. So the readership rates, when you look at the stats in MailChimp, we were getting like 65% open rates, which is pretty good for a fortnightly newsletter. And then one of the things we did back early on was we were trying to understand, so the informal communication was great because everyone read it and people in the company from the CEO down to the most junior developer got the same view of what was going on across tech. We introduced a section at the bottom back pretty much nine, eight, nine years ago called red flags. And under red flags, if we had an outage, if we scored an own goal and took something down, if something went wrong, we always put in the newsletter and told the whole company, this was an issue, this is what we've done to make sure it doesn't happen again, or hey, this was our fault, you know we screwed up by doing that it kills the blame culture entirely so everyone knows you know if you screw up talk about it that way people learn what went wrong it doesn't happen again you don't get blamed for it so it's actually okay you create that safe space i 
stood up in front of all hands before and told people about my biggest screw-ups so that, you know, take the fear of recrimination out. Um, secondly, and the, the real value, the real benefit from doing that was we emailed the whole company every week or every fortnight about what went right and what went wrong. If we sent an email and didn't say something about this went wrong, the assumption was everything is okay because if it was wrong, we would have told you. And so the, the level of trust in the tech team just elevates by, by having that kind of transparency. Now, by communicating in five slides and sending it to the CEO or the executive team or the board, you get a bit of trust from the top down, but from the entire organization, this is how you get it. And if you send them an email and say, please see attached PowerPoint, no one's going to read it or PDF or whatever else. If you send them an email and everything's on screen and it's bullet points, so it's, you can skim it, you get 65%. That's a very interesting approach. I like that. I like that. Okay. You, you mentioned, so I don't, unfortunately I don't remember what talk it was, but you also, you, you talk about the whole trust factor, you know, previously. One of the things that also during that talk, I think you also, you talk about, um, how you get engineers to work on almost pet projects, but they, they're sort of like agreed projects. So they're not necessarily the normal main business. Talk to me about how you start getting the directors of the board or CEO on board with something like that. Because, you know, in their space, they're going, well, you're taking away from our main product. You know, how do you justify that and how do you implement that? Back in when I first joined, I'm trying to work out when it was, many years ago, um, I went back into, it was the second time I worked at Fairfax, and there was a gentleman on the team whose name was Matt Ferries. He lives in Perth now. And Matt was running, they were doing a hackathon with a tech team. And they would, everyone would take, a, I forget what the time was, say it was a half a day or a day, and they would work on these pet projects. And then they'd walk around and take a look at people's screens, and each person would demo what they'd done. And it was kind of a low-key event. And I loved what I'd seen there so much. And so I kind of pilfered his idea, um, except we made it scale. So we took it to the whole company, to the whole, not just his team, but the whole tech team for that particular division. The CEO, I had a chat with him and he said, how are you going to show a return on this investment? And so I built a dashboard and we had, it was basically a massive Excel spreadsheet with like a scorecard. So which team, what was the project? And then we gave it a rating from concept through to in production. Obviously the expectation is not that everything gets to production, but we wanted to show something did. And it was just to say, we spent the time, we created ideas, some of them were good and they made it into the product. So there's, there's hard value created. And we ran that dashboard for, for, it was about a year and we would do this every three months. After that role, my role got bigger and I was running, it was the product tech role for all of Fairfax and we tried to figure out how to scale it across the whole company. And so started talking about what innovation is and what disruption is and trying to explain to people how if you have someone who's busy for the entire working day and they're allocated and as soon as they finish what they're doing, they have to go get the next ticket from Jira or whatever system you're using and there's not, they're 100% allocated the whole team. There's all this overhead that creeps in because when you've got that kind of allocation, you've got queue management and you've got processes. If they're 99% allocated, the whole world is simpler. So we try to make it clear what the value of, of free time actually is. And we took the one days to two days and we got all the product team and all the tech team able to participate, not mandatory, but able. 
And the rule of thumb was for every team it's mandatory, but for every person it's not. So the leadership have to try and encourage people to participate. But if you've got too much on your plate, don't. Um, and of course, that was never actually enforced. It was never like, oh, your team didn't participate. You must be bad people. We typically see, saw like 50, 60% participation even through domain. Um, so that worked really well. And then because it was working well at scale, we got the attention of the exec team and I spoke to them saying, talk about this is innovation and this is how you create space for innovation and you know, let people do the crazy projects because it's good for a laugh. There's all these different returns on investment when you spend time doing hackathons or innovation days. One of them is the product you ship. The second is idea diffusion. Someone sees something, it's like, that is an awesome idea. I'm going to steal it for my product. So they kind of cross-pollinate. Um, and one of them is just the, the team building, the people having fun and having a laugh together. And almost always after we did some kind of an innovation day hackathon, we would have beers and have a social thing at the end as well. So that grew and it worked really well. And then when I moved into domain, I pushed to get people beyond product and tech involved. So at the last one we ran, we had people from the sales team presenting. We had people from marketing pitching and we we created different streams so you could come with a pitch you didn't have to actually build the product so it was kind of in fact we also created this was not me it was mary uh, one of the ladies in the the user experience team a pitch fest and the whole idea was it's for people who can't do the tech so come with a pitch you've got an idea you think we should be looking at and then the ceos in the audience listening to the pitch along with the head of product and along with the the chief data officer and along with whoever else is making decisions um, and so that worked really well as well. So the driver for me was make it scale. Take it, it, it's, it shouldn't be a tech thing. It should be an organizational thing. And that's how you say, if you say innovation is a value, as I think 60, 70% of companies have innovation as a value, what are you doing to bring it to life? And this is this was a way of very visibly bringing, bringing it to life. It's a bit of a culture hack because it's relatively small in the scheme of things, but it's quite emotionally charged. People get very engaged and excited and it's, it's a very clear visceral message. We recognize and reward this. Have you, have most of the companies that you've worked for, have they always been, you know, sort of a innovation mindset or has there been a few instances where you've had to kind of push and get people to start thinking more in an innovation mindset because with the innovation mindset it goes the acceptance of failure um wanting to test things very quickly does that make sense yeah so the smaller companies typically the less appetite they have for this kind of thing i 100 percent believe that any company that believes they operate in a tech environment is an innovator or is getting ready to go out of business. You might not want to call it innovation and you know Clay Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma and so on might be too academic for you. Did you ship a new product? Have you shipped a new version or are you working on a new version? You're fundamentally innovating. Has someone in your sales team tried to do process optimization? It's innovation. You know, that's it's the buzzword is kind of scary because it's been developed and exploited by people making a lot of money out of it as a concept. But fundamentally what it is, it's creativity and invention taken to market. Now, the smaller a company, the more important the taken to market element is. So you might not be running a lab, which is um, invention as opposed to innovation. You might be shipping new products. So you've, you're actually more focused on innovation than you think. You talk at length on that and I'm again apologies I can't remember what talk it was 
but where you break, if I recall correctly, you break out innovation in two different forms, right? Can you remember that talk and can you talk a little bit more about that? I think it was, I think it might have been an Ignite talk. I think it might well. have been an Ignite um, talk. I've got notes here, but I'm trying, can't find it. And it was, so the, the concept is straight out of Clay Christensen's, I don't remember which book. Um, but the concept was sustaining versus disruptive innovation. I think that's the one you're yes, talking about. Yes. So sustaining innovation is uh, more often than not, it's incrementalism. It's I've got a great product, let's bolt a feature in. And the forms that it can take are incremental feature additions or cost optimization. So your product's mature, you're not developing it a lot. So let's rip out as much of the operating cost and basically milk it. It's that if you think of a sigmoid curve for product lifecycle, you've gone through the big the vertical bit on the S and you've hit that plateau now it's time to try and make it run for as long as possible while we invent the next big thing so that's the sustaining innovation the disruptive innovation is it fundamentally displaces another product people like to talk about uber and taxis that's the best example of d democratizing transport so the drivers the passengers it's all done through an app you don't have to touch cash. There's no stranglehold in the industry. So pricing in theory should be set by supply and demand. Things didn't, it looks a little bit different now when you look at Uber, but that was the early day promise versus a centralized, um, highly regulated taxi industry. And so what happens is the ride share thing came along and it slowly rose the taxis and it eats the market from the bottom up until eventually the new product actually redefines what value is. And then inevitably the old product is like, okay, the metrics have all changed and now suddenly we've got this very expensive model where everyone's more than willing to accept the cheap product because the value has been redefined. Um, the best example of that from my working life was newspapers. Newspapers were always where you went to get your news, to get your jobs, cars, houses and classifieds and the whole lot was bundled together. As soon as the internet came along, it decoupled jobs, cars, houses, classifieds, and news. So you had, well, domain where I was working was one of the housing ones. REA was another one. They used to rely on newspapers for distribution. So there was a reason that the two would be shipped together. I can remember a conversation about a decade ago with the head of marketing for Fairfax, where he said they'd done research for the Sydney Morning Herald and found 50% of people buying the SMH on a Saturday were buying it for the domain book. So as soon as you go online, you have the, the decoupling of the product. So the value chain entirely changes. All of a sudden, the reason to go and pay whatever it costs for a Sydney Morning Herald today versus just going online and reading your ads as they get listed, not having to wait for Saturday, the entire thing is redefined. And suddenly you're left with an expensive product that's harder to sell. That's, that's textbook disruption right there. So the market gets eroded from the bottom eBay goes general classifieds, Seek goes jobs, Domain goes property, car sales on, on cars, and you've got this, you have, it's kind of verticalization. So instead of getting a bundle of everything once a week or whenever you bought your paper, you go to each one on an as-needs as basis. Now, if you think of service stations, if you had to fill your car up, you can't pay at the pump. The technology exists. There are some stations where after hours you can pay at the pump, or there used to be. You have to go into the store. Because while you're in the store, you're going to buy that Snickers bar, or you're going to buy the Eclipse Mint, or you're going to buy a Coke. As soon as you can charge your car at home, what happens to the service stations? And not only because of the petrol, they make a lot of money out of that little utility shop. So sooner or later, someone's going to do something where you can pay for the petrol, or you know, the fill-up doesn't involve you having to go into the shop, and you, 
you're unbundling and that will be disruption again. So these opportunities will pop up and that's what digital is fundamentally. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Looking ahead, what's next for you? It's, it's a very hard question to answer. I'm spending a lot of time talking to a lot of people at the moment. I've wrapped up a domain I finished a week ago, just over a week ago. And so still very, very early days to work it out. I have no idea what I'm getting a lot of enjoyment out of is catching up with people talking about different startups where people have got interesting things going on, different industries as well. So the fintechs have been very interesting at the moment, talking to a health tech company as well, which is quite interesting. There's so much happening. It's, 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 it's a very good time to be in our industry right now. There's a lot of interesting things happening. So I, I haven't quite worked out what's next yet, but um, I'm enjoying the process of trying to figure it out. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that you, you're quite excited about the, the startup world. Uh, I, I quite enjoy the startup world personally myself. I think there's a lot of real world problems being solved and a lot of very high energy people out there. So definitely looking forward to see what the future brings for for startup world. What about in technology? Is there anything that you would specifically like to see change? In tech as an industry? In the tech industry as a whole, yes. I find it, and this is coming from a, a middle-aged white guy, I find it so cringeworthy when I read about some of the harassment that people face in our industry. And you often see, you know, some emotionally charged person who's come out of a situation and felt that they've been abused or, or not treated correctly. And then you, you read this rant on Twitter as they kind of having a vent because of them. Like, no one should be put in that situation. And it fundamentally doesn't make sense that we'd have such a male-dominated industry because it's it's not a it's not physical labor. There's no there's no reason that the industry would be like it is. And so I guess pushing pushing for a lot more diversity in our industry would create a lot more jobs because the industry would scale and grow quicker. I don't think that it's a, a zero-sum game. I don't think that encouraging more women into tech is going to mean there's less jobs for middle-aged white men. So. I don't know what the fear factor is or why people are resistant to the hard push on diversity. I think it's an incredibly important thing for our industry to get right and soon. Yes, definitely agree. There's a, there seems that there's more and more people I'm speaking to that also agree that, you know, getting more women into tech is, and there's a lot of the universities doing good work as well in that space. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see where we go with that. Any specific type of tech that excites you at the moment? I'm a, I'm such a gadget freak. I'm terrible. <laughs> I see you tinkering on the weekends. Yeah. <laughs> There's always something. I, so, whew, I'm trying to work out what the last thing I bought was. I already got the new iPhone, the Pro, which is an amazingly good camera. I have an iPad Pro, which is now, I'm not sure how old it is. It's, it's, I think I've been out for a year, maybe. So it's, it's not that new, but I'm, I find that thing is a total replacement for my laptop in the day. So as I'm running around the city, going different meetings and going, you know, so pull up a chair in the coffee shop, I've got everything I need in there. It's got a SIM card, so I don't need Wi-Fi. And I'm loving that. I'm finding that is a, it's a pro, so it's pretty powerful and it's good. It would be nice if you could actually run a better OS, which is coming apparently with the new iPad OS. But yeah, I love that thing. It's, it's a life changer for me compared to, I never had one for years. And so I was carrying a laptop around. This is just the portability and everything is fantastic. Okay. Okay. And what about bigger tech things like whether it's AI or robotics or any of that type of stuff? Is there anything that's kind of catching your eye 
So the the thing that I was doing that was the most interesting personal project, pet project, I think, um, at Domain was we created a team called Emerging Tech and I specifically wanted to work on machine learning. And the the guys in the team did this amazing work. So we started, we built out a vision AI to process images and we pumped every image I think it's probably been 18 months. Every single photo of every single property has been passed through this AI and the models have been trained and refined and they're really good at identifying, say, swimming pools, courtyards. And then they started building products to sit on top of this new data set, which is at this point a competitive advantage as well. And the product potential is just phenomenal. And then the, so for, for a hackathon, the, one of the guys from the machine learning team and one of the Android developers built a, they read the floor plans for houses. They identified the compass and understood which way was north. And they understood what was walls, what was windows. And then they built a thing where you chose a date and there's a slider and you could see the sun pattern. So how does this, which windows get sun when and so on. Like that kind of thing where it's, it's game changer. It's not, it's not just an incremental product feature. It's like it brings a new depth. So a user would look at your product and say, I want to use that because, you know, these are the kind of questions that you want to answer before you commit to an hour of Saturday going to see a house. So like the enrichment that you can add to existing assets by applying AI or ML, I think is phenomenal. And it's, it's still early days. I think it's still warming up. Interesting. I, I think the big thing with something like AI is, you know, it's such a big beast to attack is, uh, you know, how, how do you even start with a lot of that type of stuff? I, I find that space very, very interesting myself that I'm trying to learn. So the best thing about that team. <laughs> so the guy who originally put the team together, uh, I went to him and I said, so this is what I want to start working on. These are the teams. And here's a list. I think I gave him from memory, there were like 10 different ideas that I just jotted down and said, just pick one, just, just start. It doesn't matter what it is. And he came back and said, so I've sat with a team and we think all your ideas are terrible. And we've got this other idea, which was number 11, call it. And that was where they started. And so for me, the, the whole point of that was, you know, two thumbs up, go. And the reason why was it's not about the product you created. It's create a repeatable pattern, show that you can create this new capability because it's fundamentally new. If you've got a, a team of um, web and database engineers building a normal website, they are very unlikely to succeed on their own without some kind of change being engineered for them um, to create that fourth layer to to handle the ML. So it was just go build whatever. And they built this, they connected, I won't go into all the details, but connected the images to the floor plans using uh, machine learning. And the product actually launched. And when it went live, I was ecstatic. And I was ecstatic. There was zero extra revenue attached to it. In fact, there was costs to operate it. But the product was live and they'd proven that we could use ML to create consumer-facing products. And there was a repeatable pattern because we'd now created an ML team. So to me, that was that was probably the single most transformational thing I actually got done in my job at Domain. At least the seed is planted. It's up to someone else to water the tree now. <laughs> but yes, yes, yes. yeah, it's a, that. I think it's still early days. Um, there's a lot of hype. You got to find the actual value, and that's difficult because there's a lot of vendors are going to come and sell you ML or AI, and more often than not, it's a rules engine on top of some big data set. So 
the true product is something you and capability as well so creating the capability and understanding the value that you can create you have to incrementally build but thank you very much i've really enjoyed um, producing the show we've now actually we've been talking for about 15 minutes now it's been great fun thank um, you and yeah thank you very much thanks a lot Thank you for listening to the Tech Leaders Talk Show. I'm your host, Ernst Pelser. If you've enjoyed listening to the show, please help us by rating the show on your favorite podcast platform and sharing with your friends. If you have any feedback or questions, please reach out to me on LinkedIn.